going back to your um, your sort of longer term vision for fencing and fortress conservation. It's kind of a, a failure, though, isn't it? The fact that we have to do that. It's a failure of society. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes, it's very sad that we've had to resort to fences and fortress conservation. It's basically admitting that humanity cannot coexist with with wildlife. And that's why this area here is such an amazing and important model. Because if it works here, it, it proves that coexistence ca can actually work. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. I am currently back home in Scotland, um, sat at my desk. It is beautiful and sunny and warm outside, and that is where I'd rather be. But unfortunately, I have a bunch of projects from the last few months that I'm trying to get on top of, including Paid in Blood, um, which has been giving me a headache all morning because I'm so close to being finished. This should be the last round of feedback this week. Uh, but for those filmmakers out there, or anybody who's used Adobe Premiere Pro, you will know how temperamental it is. And it just will not render out for me. So I've had an incredibly frustrating start to my Tuesday morning and uh, a colossal waste of my time I, that I'm never going to get back. But hopefully I'm going to be able to resolve this problem in the next couple of hours uh, and actually kick out a project. I am not long back from Rwanda where I had the great privilege of filming gorillas for a couple of days with John Banovich. Um, you'll see more from that in the coming uh, weeks and months. The series From the Front Lines, of which you've heard three episodes now, will be continuing in the coming weeks. We're taking a brief break while I organize that next interview and get that whole show put together. That series has been supported by Rocky Talkie, who make these brilliant, very compact, extremely rugged radios for the backcountry. Uh, you can still get 10% off those if you visit rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. That's rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. That's the name of this podcast for 10% off your set of Rocky Talkie radios. I've been using them continually now for more than four months in the field and they've been uh, brilliant. And I, I, I don't leave the house for a production without them now. So we are returning to uh, From the Field, which started in episode 200, if you want to go all the way back there. Um, but that was a very highly integrated show. There was only three episodes. We had eight or nine interviews, and each one was about 30 minutes long. But we did these, these eight or nine interviews that were full-blown, one-hour, one-and-a-half-hour conversations, and so much of that got left out. And that is what I'm bringing to you here. You've already heard from conservation biologist uh, Phil and Bryce Lowe and concession operator of Zambezi Delta Safaris, Mark Haldane, in the last couple of weeks. So skip back if you missed those. They're brilliant conversations. In this show, I'm going to sit down with uh, Tyler Sharp, editor-in-chief of Modern Huntsman, and Vincent van der Merwe, who is uh, a specialist in the conservation of cheetah. So we're going to hear all about this incredible species and the challenges they are facing. Lastly, before we jump into this episode, a massive thank you to the Patreon supporters this week who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of Artie Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Dick Ekstrom, Mark Zabrowski, and Leslie Cumming. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to support this show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron. Yeah. 
That can be the opening sound. I, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The opening yeah, yeah. We're gonna, this is going to be like that one Scotch podcast we did where... Oh, where we were pissed. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I you. was definitely pissed. But we've got three more beers, so <laughs> we'll have to open these during the middle. Beer break. So we are sat here, uh, quite literally in the middle of a landing strip in the bush yep. in Mozambique. Um, Tyler Sharp is joining me and uh vincent vincent i actually don't even know your second name what's your second name vincent <laughs> my second name is fanamara uh, yeah so it's a very uh common... like the rugby player uh yes that's correct the scottish rugby player yeah. yes that's so a very duan fanamara yeah it's a very common south african name it's like the joneses in, in wales yeah uh people have a lot of jokes about us and it's uh <laughs> people might think that was quite rude though. i hadn't actually worked at your second name but we literally have been running non-stop since you arrived yesterday Explain what has been happening in the last day or two, because the journey that you've just taken, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into some of your background and stuff in a minute, but the journey that you've just taken with the cargo that you have just transported is pretty special. Yes, this is a, a giant leap forward for, for, for our cheetah conservation project. You know, in South Africa and in other parts of Southern Africa, Malawi, uh, Zambia, we, we get access to small reintroduction sites, you know, ranging from 20,000 hectares to, to, to maybe 70,000 hectares. Maromeo, Zambezi Delta, where we are now, re represents 900,000 hectares of safe space for cheetah. So this is really a wonderful opportunity. This area has the ecological capacity to support 120 cheetahs. And this is our, by far our largest reintroduction. You know, we've, uh, we've released 11 cats here now. It was supposed to be 12. We lost one. But um, it was, it was, it's been one hell of a journey. I don't know if you have time for me to delve into it. Oh, damn right, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to hear. I, I mean, I'm interested because we, we were obviously only part of it from when your wheels touched down here in Kutada 11. Uh, but this journey actually started many days before because you had to go and catch these cheetah, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. So where, how come you were able, tell me about the population where they they came from. Okay. So it all started um, way before I became involved in cheetah conservation. Uh, democracy comes to South Africa. And just be, before democracy, uh, there was change in legislation in South Africa that o allowed landowners to own the wildlife on their property. So democracy came and there was this tourism boom in South Africa and a lot of agricultural land switched to conservation, ecotourism. People actually made more money out of ecotourism than agriculture. So they brought in lions, leopards, cheetahs, reintroduced them onto these large uh, farms, which were previously mainly cattle farms, and created what we call a meta-population. So... So basically, there was this tourism boom, and uh, these tourists were willing to pay lots of money to come and see these animals. And the condition that government gave to these privately owned, and, of, and some of them were state-owned reserves, what, is that you have to fence these reserves. And the moment you fence a reserve, you fence humanity out. And, uh, so it's like, this is fortress conservation. Fortress conservation, absolutely. Uh, which is against the current conservation paradigm. Everyone's looking at coexistence at this point in time. So we're very much against the current paradigm in conservation. When, well, we're not personally against it, but the, this project that we inherited was due to fortress conservation. And, um, but that was of the time, right? Like everything from the colonial era onwards kind of brought that with the, with, with the national park system, which actually was inherited from the Americans. Yeah. Yes. Like put a, you can visit it, but you can't live in it anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and 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 obviously, if you fence humanity out, you take out the greatest danger to cheetahs. And uh, so these cheetah populations started to flourish. Uh, but because they're such small reserves, my I was employed initially simply to do cheetah swaps between reserves to prevent inbreeding. Ah, okay, because this is one of the major issues with these fenced areas. Even big fenced, relatively speaking, big fenced areas is you don't have this genetic flow. Exactly. Uh, long gone are the days of the wide open spaces for animals to move freely. Uh, uh, we now stuck with these small little islands. <laughs> we, we've got company. Yeah. We we drove out to the middle of the airstrip so that we wouldn't be disturbed. And clearly, in somebody's a, in two seen. different vehicles are now pulling up. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see what's happening. Yeah. Maybe we're off to go and collar a leopard yeah. already. I don't know. Hello. <laughs> Did we run away with something in here? <laughs> Okay, so yes, yeah. So so basically, we inherited all these uh, fenced areas, and my job was simply to ensure genetic health of the cheetahs in these fenced areas. So after apartheid, cheetah were reintroduced into forty-five fenced reserves across South Africa. Wow, and, and um, they, they had been hammered by the like the the, the flourishing farming, hadn't yes, it? because they are huge predators when it comes to livestock. Yes, they're a big pest for goats and sheep. Uh, sometimes a young cattle as well. Adult cattle, obviously, too big for cheetah. But uh, yes, and South Africa was the most heavily colonized uh, country in Africa. So, so you can see, if you look at a map of South Africa, the colonials arrived, arrived in Cape Town. And as they moved upwards into the country, they completely decimated wild cheetah populations. Um, in the 1960s, we had just uh, 300 cheetah left in South Africa. 300? 300, yeah. Wow. And we're now on 1,300 wild cheetahs, um, just through reintroductions. And uh, it's been a wonderful thing to observe, you know, and it's all thanks to democracy and private land ownership and re re respecting property value. Yeah. Was there a, was there underlying genetic issues from only having three animals, or is that enough? Um, like as a bottleneck? Yes, yes. The, the cheetah bottleneck theory has actually been refuted by the latest science. Oh, okay. Yes, so... So cheetahs actually have similar levels of genetic diversity compared to other large predators. It's just that, you know, in the 1980s when those initial genetic tests were done on cheetahs, they they looked at they worked with allozymes, not actually with DNA. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, this bottleneck theory came about because someone skin grafted a piece of cheetah skin from one cheetah onto another and miraculously the um you know the the what do you call it the immune system of of that cheetah didn't reject this foreign skin which is very abnormal and as a result of that this bottleneck theory came about that cheetahs went through a bottleneck uh, 10,000 years ago during the last ice age where the whole global population shrank and that all cheetahs stem from this tiny population of three individuals which has now been uh, completely refuted okay so yeah. the three hundred that, so the the, the population of thirteen hundred you said now yes came from the three hundred that were left yes in South Africa in South Africa well, was the, there introductions from other countries yes because Namibia was a colony of of South Africa and Namibia post has, being German colony post in yeah. World War One uh, being a British colony we invaded Namibia and inherited it as a colony mm -hmm. and um, and Namibia has the largest cheetah population worldwide. And a lot of problem animals on their livestock farms. Yeah. And we imported 300 of those cheetah into South Africa. Ah, okay. And that's how we started to grow our populations. Huh. And just in terms of uh, a more global perspective on cheetah, where else do you get cheetah and how many species of cheetah are there? 
So this is a very interesting question. Um, if a cheetah occurred widely across Africa, except for the forested areas, uh, jungle areas, uh, and uh, then they occurred throughout the Middle East all the way uh, to, to Burma and India, Bangladesh, and all the way north to Russia. In uh, Russia? Yeah, in 1979, huh. the last cheetah was seen in the Soviet Union. But is that the same cheetah that's here, or is this a different species? So that is, uh, yes, so they are, f- f- let me just get it right, uh, five, so, <laughs> so, so five subspecies okay. of cheetah. Uh, Southern African cheetah, East African cheetah, there's a lot of discrepancy as, as to whether they are actually separate. Okay. Because there's no geographical barrier between us and East Africa. But they're morphologically different. Not actually. No? Uh, like color variation? C- slight color variation. Oh, okay. but the, if you so does, does that really go back to the old categorization where they were just like doing measurements and did, if something was a slightly different color, they called it a subspecies? Exactly. Yeah. You had, uh, but genetically uh, similar. Genetically similar. You had lump, uh, what they call split, lumpers and splitters. So if the cheetah taxonomist working on, well, if the taxonomist working on cheetah was a splitter, you know, some people tend to split things into categories. Oh, okay. Then, I've never heard that. Yes, yes. And then you get some scientists or taxonomists that are lumpers, and they just lump everything into the same group, you know. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, for cheetahs, they split East and Southern African and then West African. And then it, there's a little population that did get caught between the Ethiopian highlands and uh, the, 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 the Red Sea. Uh, that was jammed in there and evolved into something separate. That's the Northeast African cheetah or the Somali uh, Djibouti cheetah and then the Asiatic cheetah. Of course, yeah. And there's not many Asiatic cheetahs left, is there? There's about 20 to 40 left in Iran. Uh, We're working very closely with the Iranian Cheetah Society. They left in one population in Turan National Park. But from a genetic perspective, that that population is uh, functionally extinct. It is. So yeah. what are the, I mean, what are the, I realize we're getting slightly off topic from what we're doing here. We're still <laughs> talking about cheetah. What are they actually doing there? Because somewhere in the back of my mind, I seem to remember them wanting to try and reintroduce Southern African cheetah just to bolster the population, even though it's different. This is actually a project we're working on right oh, now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've recently uh, managed to extract a, a West African cheetah sample, which showed strong genetic similarities to Asiatic cheetah. Interesting. And we've employed an Iranian to go to West Africa to catch more cheetah, and then uh, to 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 verify what we found. And it makes sense because if you look at North Africa and West Africa. You know, it's connected to Asia through the Sinai Peninsula, um, there by Egypt and Israel. So there's no reason as to why there would have been a limited gene. No, you know, the, there's no barrier to gene flow between North Africa and, and Asia. So, so if, you know, we've still got to learn a lot about cheetah genetics. We certainly haven't, uh, uh, you know, solved it. Uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And we might find that they actually all pretty much the same thing. Hmm, that's fine. Well, yeah, I'm going to have to follow up on that. 22, because that's, I mean, they have to do something now or they're going to lose the... Exactly. And that's what we're hoping. You know, we really are hoping that uh, we can get some gene flow going between West Africa and Iran. And we've employed an Iranian to do the West African work. Okay. So so just to get that connection going. Have they got um, pretty heavy... Prote- so what was the, the reason for the decline in population there? Was the same sort of deal as in Southern Africa? Or it's, different? It's actually, it's it's quite a interesting story now why are the why are the cheetah populations in asia decimated and the simple answer to that is that this is where agriculture started in iran and iraq 13000 years ago this is where humans first 
started domesticating animals and plants. And humans, since we started practicing agriculture, we've had a very unhealthy relationship with the environment. Mm -hmm. And Yes, yeah, yeah, them and us. And um, uh, 13,000 years of agriculture in the Middle East, sheep farming, goat farming, resulted in retaliatory killings and uh, their wild cheetah populations have been decimated. If you look at West Africa, uh, that's where agriculture started in, in Black Africa. 7,000 years of agriculture in West Africa, you've only got 200 cheetah left. Hmm. Agriculture only hit East Africa 2,000 years ago. And that's why they got 2,000 cheetah left. And it only hit where we are now in Southern Africa 1,500 years ago. So we've got 4,000 cheetah because we've only had agriculture here for a very short period of time. So th- this, this correlation of conflict is very clear in that. Exactly. Humans do not coexist well with cheetahs. I mean, you can't put a, a, a cheetahs into an area where they're practicing goat and sheep farming. Yeah. Mm. Oh, sorry, I just want to move this cable here. Just there. No just problem. Noise. So, uh, <laughs> this amazing tangent that we've just gone off on, but back to Mozambique, back to South Africa, back to this increased population to 1300 plus has allowed you now, I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm reading between the lines, to siphon off some of that population and repopulate in other places, which I'm guessing is what you're doing here. Exactly. So, so we have a growing wild cheetah population. Our population is expanding by 40 individuals per year. And the government has given us permission to take the surplus of cheetahs and to reintroduce them into other parts of Africa. And in the, at the end of this year, we, we reintroduce into India in November. Oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. Are you yeah. doing that in India? Yes. yes that yes, is yes. exciting. Yes. Having sir. spent a bit of time in India, that's awesome. Very exciting, but also a bit nerve-wracking. You know, we... We're using Maromeo as sort of a, a tester to see what it's... If there's one place in Africa where the coexistence model could work, it's Maromeo. And that's because the hunters have a very healthy relationship with the surrounding community. They give them meat. They give them uh, medical supplies. They give them, uh, um, you know, they've uh, improved the schooling in the uh, surrounding area. And uh, this means that they have a healthy relationship with the surrounding community, which means we could actually get the coexistence model right here. And this is because there is um, a very clear trade-off we, between the, the conservation concern, which in this instance is cheetahs, and local communities actually seeing benefit from that. Is Absol- that why? Absolutely, absolutely. There must be visible benefits to them. Otherwise, they have, you know, they don't have an interest in protecting the wildlife because we know the data is very clear on the on the fact that unless you raise communities in Africa into the middle income bracket, the environment is not going to be their top concern. People only. I mean, that's understandable. Like, I mean, why on earth would it be? Exactly. If you've got to worry about eating the next day, how, how can you be concerned about conservation? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very kind of privileged position to worry about conservation of species, I think. Exactly. And people only become environmentally conscious when they're in the middle income bracket. Mm-hmm. So they have to see the visible, the benefits of conservation must be visible to that community. Otherwise, they are not going to be uh, interested. So tell me about the, the capture process back in South Africa that, w- that we, weren't, we weren't part of. We just saw you guys arriving. What, how, what did that entail? 
it was actually um, it started way before that. If you don't mind me yeah, no, delving into please. that, yeah. <laughs> so we just you know we had this expanding population and we needed to uh, 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 re- relocate surplus animals to other parts of of Africa because otherwise we were going to have to either euthanize or we were going to literally have to um, contracept. Ah, okay. Yeah. So this is the, there's there's two stories here. So one is your ability because of increasing populations to put animals somewhere else. But you also actually had a problem. Yes, a surplus ah, of cheetahs. Ah, okay. <laughs> and Malawi was our first uh, re- reintroduction site. Uh, the reserves there were fenced by African parks, and we relocated cheetahs to Malawi. And as soon as they landed, they took off. Uh, the population started increasing and created more problems because what we were going to do with the surplus in Malawi now? And... Um, and then, and then we started looking elsewhere. So I was actually driving down from Malawi back to South Africa, and I heard about this place called Marameo, and I phoned up uh, Mark Haldane, uh, the manager of Kotaro 11, and um, I said, look, I'd love to just come and have a look uh, and, and see what this place is all about and, and to investigate prospects for reintroduction. And he said, no problem, and he whisked me off in his helicopter, and I saw those floodplains, and I said, we are good to go. It <laughs> <laughs> is a go. <laughs> The problem is, he said to me, Vincent, I want proof of the historical presence of the, of the species in this area. Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. And that was, of course, a big mission because Mozambique wasn't a heavily colonized country and not many hunters and colonials really moved through these areas uh, because this area was, of course, heavily infested with malaria and, and sleeping sickness and all kinds of horrible things historically. And uh, we went down to the uh, Maputo uh, Natural History Museum and we found some old Portuguese literature that spoke about a cheetah population close to Kiliman, but didn't give any real specifics. Now, Kiliman's about 200 kilometers north of here. So I delved a little bit more into the lit- Portuguese literature with translators and we didn't find much. And eventually I thought, okay, the only place is to go to the largest library worldwide, and that's the British Library in London. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, we marched in there, and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, it's just such a massive library. It's insane, that place. <laughs> it's a really wonderful place and good internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike out here, which is what we want when we're out here, yeah, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yes, uh, we went and we, I dug through the literature, and I found this book called Wild Game Hunting on the Zambezi, written by a British chap called Malgam. In 1950. You know I'm going to have to look this up. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we both need <laughs> this in our library now. Yeah. <laughs> and I started reading the book and I went, I went to the index and I looked up Cheetah and I couldn't believe it. Boom, there it was. Really? Page, page 1915. 1915. Uh, page 178, Wild Game Hunting on the Zambies. Man, you have a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> but why, I mean, why was this clearly such a burden of importance for Mark? And, I mean, was it important to you before he had mentioned it, making sure that there was a historical range here? Yes, if you want to do cheetah reintroduction responsibly, you know, you first want to check that the species survived here historically. For any species, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that, you know, because we knew that if we're going to proceed with this reintroduction, uh, other organizations, conservation organizations are going to ask questions. And you want to have that evidence, you know, and... um, so this Malgam chap was marching along here in 1905. The book was published in 1915, but uh, he came through this area in 1905, and he saw a um, sorry, a martial eagle bombarding something at the mouth of the Zambezi, where it goes into the sea. And um, as they did in those days, he shot 
the Marshall League. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> and um, remember, people, Darwin shot a lot of stuff too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And this bird came crashing down, and they went to uh, collect it. And what did they find? It was bombarding three young cheetah cubs. And that was our proof of the historical presence of cheetah in, in the Zambezi okay. Delta. Yeah. <laughs> and then Mark gave the thumbs up. Okay. And, um, so now it was a go. Now it was a go. Now it was a go. And then we had to, of course, do the bureaucracy, uh, the import permits, export permits, but we had to identify 10 suitable cheetah for reintroduction. Ideally, so what does suitable mean? So lion have obviously been reintroduced into the Delta, which mm. is the it's main... a whole other story here. Yeah. Yes, yes. They're the main killers of cheetah, lion. So in South Africa, 45% of our, our cheetah mortalities are due to lion. Wow, I didn't realize it was as high as that. Yeah. Now, lion are the principal killers of cheetah, and 9% due to leopard. And then uh, um, we're not sure how, how much cheetah mortality is due to spotted hyena, but we lose a lot of cubs to... We're pretty confident that it's in somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 20% of... of of wild cheetah mortality due to hyena, just hyenas eating cubs yeah, hmm. in the den side. So they've got a lot against them. Yes, they really are the underdogs of the large carnivore world. Yeah. yeah. And Under, under cats. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we had to identify hard predator-savvy cheetah to survive here. Yeah. Ah. So we, we couldn't go to a soft reserve where cheetah haven't seen competing predators before. We had to get hardy animals. Like, this is a big cheetah I'm seeing with a big shaggy mane. <laughs> <laughs> so they needed to be smart, basically. Exactly. We call it predator-savvy. Okay. And we went and we identified 10 individuals, two from uh, 12 individuals, two from Malawi and 10 from South Africa. And... Um, yeah, and then I had to go capture these cheetah on seven different reserves across southern Africa. So how long did that take? That took us about two months to, wow. to gather all these cheetah up. And uh, it was it was quite a, a, a nerve-wracking experience because the first two we caught were the two females in Malawi. And we got them in the Boma and I phoned uh, Mark and Ivan Carter, who are the coordinators of the conservation efforts here. And uh, they said to me, uh, fantastic, well done. We've got the two Malawi cats. And the next day, a pride of lions walked past the boma where we'd put these two Malawi cats into and spooked these two females. And the one ran into the fence and broke her neck. So that was, that was a big, you know, a big, you know, these wildlife reintroductions are a roller coaster ride. You know, it's highs and lows. And um, this was obviously a big low point. And they said, don't worry, Vincent, carry on with the project. We still got the one female from Malawi. Proceed with the capture of the 10 animals in South Africa. And so off we went and we caught our first female in, in the Free State, which is a very different habitat to here. Vast open grassland plains, temperatures reaching minus 8 in winter. And we caught a female there and we relocated her to a quarantine facility in Zululand where we were going to store all the 10 cheetahs from South Africa. And halfway through the journey, she, she died uh, from capture stress. So of the, the first three cats that we caught, we'd lost two already due to various complications. But that's, it's sad. And obviously, everybody wishes that doesn't happen. But that is, there's always going to be a, a risk of mortality in any big capture or, or any conservation endeavor on this kind of scale right absolutely you know and uh, I, I don't think that's very well articulated to the, the wider world we see all these amazing successes all the time 
But there's actually a price to pay sometimes. Exactly. Uh, wildlife reintroductions are inherently risky. And most conservationists are not willing to go ahead with it because you are going to lose animals. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we pick up a lot of flack for it. Uh, we've lost over 40 cheetahs over the past 10 years, relocating them between reserves due to capture stress. I mean, these are wild-born cheetahs. They've never been in a confined space before. You stick them into a 0.5 by 1 meter crate. You know, it's a very stressful experience. And we lose animals, you know. And um, But you're concerned about the species more than you're concerned about the individual. As much as you are concerned about the individual, the end goal here is the conservation of the species. You've got to look at the bigger picture. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, despite all these losses, we are still winning. Our cheetahs are genetically healthy and the population is growing. So so that's what we what we're aiming at. And um and then after that, we, we managed to find a, one replacement female for the one we'd lost. And we proceeded with the capture of the other eight cheetahs. And we got all eight safely to the quarantine bomas. It was basically a month of driving around, capturing helicopters, darting, darting driving late nights, emailing permits, <laughs> bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, I don't envy the pay. I think the, pay- the paperwork sounds like the hardest part of all of this. Absolutely. No, <laughs> I tell you, I don't want to see another permit office in my life. <laughs> and just, to, just to clarify for anyone who's never been to Africa, Boma basically means an enclosure. It's a fence. It's a, in most cases, it's a village, right, a, made of sticks and, and grass and thorns. But in, in these cases, these are const- constructed enclosures to, to keep the, the cats in. Absolutely. And uh, we've learned this from experience that bomas are very important when you relocate cheetah between different areas because they have an inbuilt GPS. They have a homing system. So if you don't use bomas and you just hot, sorry, hard release them into the, the new reserve, they simply walk back to where they came from. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. They know what you want. And they probably wouldn't be able to walk back from here. No, no, no. <laughs> so they just they just end up outside this area, which is, like you were saying, I think you said at the start, is an unfenced area. Exactly. Um, it might be worth just expanding on that and how, how amazing it is or how important it is for the future of the conservation of cheetah on the continent of Africa that these animals are being released in an unfenced area. Yes, because we really do have to give the coexistence system a go, you know. We, you know, we've run out of fenced areas. Uh, fencing wildlife is expensive. And there's something artificial about it. I was just going to ask you that. Like, how, how do you personally feel about fenced areas? Because I struggle with it because I see the value in a, a, the protectionist mindset and I can see where that is being good. But I also see that it's a system, in my mind, that is breaking down now because we have these islands of protectionism which are not big enough anymore. And all this stuff in between where people exist, which we assume is not the place that conservation exists anymore. It only exists in these in these silos. And in my mind, I would much rather see an integrated landscape where, yeah, we have some some areas which are fenced and which are very heavily and highly protected, but we have these these corridors which exist where people exist with nature. It's a tricky one because in Africa, we still have another 200 years of exponential human population growth ahead of us. Um, and we've also got a lot of economic, develop, economic development coming 
improved road infrastructure, bigger cities, more towns, more agriculture, more transformation of the landscape. So my personal belief is that we will unfortunately be, see, be seeing an increase in fencing across Africa uh, over the next 200 years. Uh, it's very sad, but in the long run, when Africa does eventually reach that point where most people are in the middle income bracket, and we will get there, I mean, we're seeing a lot of improvement on this continent, we will get there, then we can tear down the fences. Okay. But I honestly personally believe that we, we are a good 200 years away from that. Which is very sad, um, because, like I was saying, it's, there's something very artificial about these fence systems, you know, not truly natural. Yeah. So, you had all of these cheetah now in this Burma in South Africa. What happened next? Um, we because a lot of planes arrived here the other day. <laughs> <laughs> no, we very reliant on philanthropy. Uh, wealthy individuals, mainly from the West, uh, providing the massive funding that is required to move 10 wild cheetahs from South Africa, 1,000 kilometers across the subcontinent to Mozambique. And we've got to find, that's a terrible word to use, but fixers. So wildlife champions. So people that are are good at working with these uh, philanthropists from the West. And Ivan Carter is a, a, a very good example of a, a person who's got these valuable connections between Africa and the wealthy individuals in the West who have an interest in promoting conservation and doing something useful for the environment. And he came across the Gabela family uh, from the US who were very helpful in, 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 in funding this relocation, so funding the collars, you know, that's you're looking at about, uh, you know, $300 per collar, you know. Um, sorry, I think I've got that wrong. I, don't know. I think it's about $400, sorry, $400 per collar fitted to all 12 cheetahs, uh, paying four aircraft to relocate the cheetah from South Africa to uh, Mozambique. And um, it was wonderful having these guys on board, uh, funding the operation and participating in it. And um, Because without it, this just wouldn't have happened. Right? We are totally reliant on Western philanthropy to do all the work that we do. Uh, I think a lot of people think that a lot of, uh, that if you were to not explain how this was able to come about, that it was probably uh, facilitated by one like a big NGO somewhere. But so, and my experience of conservation, particularly on the continent of Africa, is exactly the example that you've just painted, where it's like, it's a family, it's a person exactly. who is basically paying for this stuff. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we had our first example of, uh, we have a Chinese philanthropist that recently funded a, a cheetah reintroduction in South Africa. And that was a giant leap forward for us because... Um, you know, it's really nice to see, uh, you know, money coming in from another avenue. Um, so, so yes, we're totally reliant on these uh, individuals to, to, to make the, the finances available, to give us the logistical muscle to do this work. And, um, yeah, and this all happened thanks to their participation. Well, and the other interesting part of that, too, is that most people would not equate, you know, relocation and, and conservation in this way with hunting dollars yes you yes. know yeah this is you know it's been a big uh you know learning curve for, for, for me personally you know i was um uh, you know 
uh, yeah, they say, uh, you know, in your 20s, if you're not uh, a liberal, you don't have a heart. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in your 30s and you don't have, if you're not a, you know, a capitalist, you don't have a, a brain, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, you know, what we've realized is that, um, you know, without the, 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 the conservation dollars coming in, it's impossible to protect these last few remaining natural uh, landscapes in Africa. And Maromé is a prime example of an area that cannot bring in dollars through ecotourism because it's flooded for six months of the year. Yeah. So your only option here to bring in those conservation dollars is to engage with the hunters. And the hunters are quite, you know, they're quite an easy bunch to please. You don't have to put them in a fancy lodge. They're happy to come and stay in a tent in a rugged uh, environment and to spend their money. And it's um, a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And they employ a lot of people in the process. They uplift the local communities uh, socially and economically. And they come and have a good time. And, um, and it's a pleasure to work with the hunters because they do us. They move us and shake us. They, um, you know, they, uh, they, 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 a big problem with a lot of the work that we, we do is that, um, you know, we, we come across a lot of risk-averse conservationists, hands-off conservationists. Just leave it. Don't touch it. But we've completely transformed the landscape in Africa. We really, you know, because of the anthropogenic destruction of the landscape, we have to now, it's our responsibility to manage the yeah. damage that we've done. Absolutely. To encourage gene flow between the few remaining fragments of, of, of habitat, or natural habitat in Africa. So you, you really do need movers and shakers and doers and yes, let's go people. And, 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 and the hunters are exactly that. And it's, um, you know, they've created here for us 900,000 hectares of safe space. I mean, if you came to this place, uh, to Maromeo 30 years ago, uh, the, the, the wildlife was completely wild, wiped out by 15 years of civil war. Mm. And the hunters have come in here and they've rejuvenated this place. They've, they've, but they've done it by working with local communities from what we've seen. Exactly. They haven't engaging them. No, there's no fences. And Tyler, you and I saw this when we were flying in. I mean, it was amazing. We were flying in and we're looking at all this amazing habitat and not really seeing any game. And then Dusty said, oh, no, we're, we're, we're just crossing the concession now. And then all of a sudden, there was like warthogs and reedbuck and we were seeing game everywhere. Yeah, I mean, w within 50 yards of crossing <laughs> the boundary of, of the game reserve, I mean... And he had pointed out where some of the burn areas were and where previous villages had been and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, as soon as we crossed the border over the river, it, it, there was game everywhere. And that's thanks to 30 years of work by the hunters. Mm -hmm. The irony is that they've actually overseen population growth and, and ecosystem. You mean human population growth? Uh, no, no, wildlife. wildlife my apologies. Wildlife population growth. Yeah. The human population growth has also happened. Yeah. And they've overseen this wildlife population growth in the face of human population growth, mm. which is a remarkable feat. And, um, you know, they've restored ecological functioning in this area. Which is, which is the ultimate goal of conservation, really. Exactly. It's ecosystem function. Exactly. Because then everything has a place. So I, I'm curious, um, as someone who clearly has a deep fascination and passion for cheetah, you're seeing in an area like this where clearly, you know, there's hunters coming in and they're hunting everything from reedbuck to, to leopards. 
it feels like it can feel like for to the outside world well how how can you be so um strongly driven by the conservation of something like big cats but be happy for someone to go and kill a leopard for example yes it's a tough one i mean this the simple answer to that is that you remove the hunters from the equation here you knock the leopards out completely so it's a trade exactly you'd rather have a little bit of hunting than no hunting at all because once you remove the hunters from here you remove any form of revenue from coming in here you remove any form of employment for the local communities here you remove their source of meat Hmm. Uh, their stable meat supply um, so leopards wouldn't be tolerated, cheetahs wouldn't be tolerated, lions wouldn't be tolerated. Absolutely not, because the people would move their livestock in here and there would be retaliatory killings in the form of carcass poisoning. So it's very easy to eradicate uh, leopards from an area like this. Um, the livestock farmers will come in, uh, the leopards will obviously come into conflict with these farmers and they will bait a carcass with a poison and they'd wipe two or three leopards out in the process. It's very simple to remove leopards from this ecosystem. Whereas the hunters have a vested interest in a leopard population here because that represents a form of revenue to them. Yeah, and they want a harvestable surplus. Exactly. And they have no interest in harvest un- harvesting unsustainably because that would kill the income stream. Hmm. So how, amongst other conservationists, not just in the cheetah world, but in the broader world, in southern Africa, how does this mindset that you have fit with the other people that you're at conferences with? <laughs> because I imagine you must butt heads. Because I, I know that there are a few. You know, I'm thinking Dr. Amy Dickman, who's been on this podcast before, Lions in Tanzania. She has a, a very similar kind of mindset and a kind of acceptance of this is good because I've seen the good that it does. And I, I know that where hunting exists in those places, that lions have a place. But how, how have you found it amongst your peers? Yes, it's very interesting that you mention Amy Dickman. I mean, she's obviously pro-hunting. She's, she's seen the conservation benefits of hunting, but she is not pro-owl hands-on approach to wildlife management. She's not pro-wildlife management at all. She, is, uh, she prefers the pure unmanaged systems, whilst being pro-hunting at the same time. Whereas in South Africa, we've fully embraced the fortress conservation model, which means fencing humanity out and, um, and, and, and managing wildlife, relocating to ensure genetic integrity. Someone like Amy would be more pro-corridor creation. But is that because of she's in Tanzania where there is these big open spaces, a very different landscape? Exactly, Africa. exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'd probably f- find if she came to South Africa, she'd adopt a similar approach to ours, metapopulation management. Interesting. But what? So what about o- other people that you? I mean, is it? it it's not. It's not that common, I don't think, amongst conservationists. No, no. So our your mindset. Our conservation philosophy is heavily frowned upon. Um, so when, when we go to conferences and we present our work, it is, I mean, you won't believe it. I mean, I, I remember going to a conference in Colombia once and a woman came up to me afterwards and she was disgusted by our conservation approach, you know, the hands-on approach, the active management, the fencing, the blocking out of communities. 
you know, from entering the conservation area. But, you know, what, what these people often fail to see is that the fortress conservation approach that we've adopted in South Africa has actually been hugely beneficial from three perspectives. It's been wonderful from a financial perspective, the source of foreign currency coming into South Africa, dollars, pounds, euros, coming into areas which were marginal for agriculture. In other words, not very profitable for agriculture. So we're making, we're earning these foreign uh, uh, currencies on on old agricultural land whilst restoring that land in, um, from an environmental perspective. You know, we, we're bringing back environmental functionality onto those properties. And from a social perspective, we're employing more people per unit area because there's anti-poaching teams, there's fencing teams, there's lodge teams. Some of our private game reserves in South Africa have 40 lodges. You know, that's employing 400 people on what was historically a cattle farm in apartheid that employed eight laborers uh, and, and didn't treat them very well. You know, and now we have people from all over the world coming to these areas, engaging with the local community, employing more people per unit area, and um, paying them a higher wage. So, so, so we, and I know a lot of people are not going to like to hear this, but we sincerely believe that that our model will be exported to other parts of Africa. Um, we're seeing it hit Malawi. We're seeing the recovery of wildlife in Malawi. We're seeing tourism coming up. We, we're seeing the fences coming up. Uh, the first fence in, wild, uh, in, in West Africa has recently been erected around a, a protected area. And this is the beginning of more fencing in West Africa. Do you see, just going back to your, um, your sort of longer-term vision for fencing and fortress conservation, it's kind of a, a failure, though, isn't it? The fact that we have to do that. It's a failure of society, yeah. absolutely, yes. It's very sad that we've had to resort to fences and fortress conservation. It's basically admitting that humanity cannot coexist with wildlife. And that's why this area here is such an amazing and important model. Because if it works here, it, it proves that coexistence can actually work. So what's the next phase here? So we, you landed with all, I mean, what, tell me what that journey was like. I'm curious to know because we weren't on it. You're in the air with all these cheetahs and boxes. Uh, it smells terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it, it really, uh, it doesn't smell good. And for the first time, my Corona mask was actually quite useful there. <laughs> um, you know, it, uh, but it, uh, the cheetah, it's a, it's a very strange animal. You know, they, they they strangely make peace with a you know with a crate about half an hour into the into the transport. Um, they make peace with a crate and they actually just sit there and um, you know they communicate with each other. So you hear a lot of cheetah chirps, mm. and they have a very weird chirp that they produce. It's more like a bird sound. Because cheetah don't roar. Absolutely, they don't yeah. roar. Yeah, they're not. Uh, they don't belong to the roaring cats like a cheetah, like lion, leopard, and tigers. Because that's why they were or. Were or are you? You can correct me. Were considered small cats for a period of time, right? Cheetahs, because they didn't roar. Yes, che they, right? they were considered meso predators, which okay. is a medium-sized predator. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're completely unrelated to the roaring cats. Cheetahs actually evolved in North America. Um, so if you look at the pronghorn, the second fastest land mammal, yeah. uh, the the speeds attained by the pronghorn evolved in in response to predation by the North American cheetah. 
Which uh, went extinct a long time ago. Yes, about two, three million years ago. Yeah. It was called Mirracenonyx. There were two subs, uh, two species that existed in North America. And then they crossed the Beringian land bridge between Alaska and Russia during a warm, sorry, uh, during an, uh, a cool, cool period when it was possible to cross there. And moved into Eurasia. And there were two species that existed in Eurasia uh, up to about a million years ago, including the largest cheetah that ever existed, which was the giant European cheetah. It weighed about 120 kilograms, the size of a female lion. Wow. So, like, to give, com- by, by comparison, how much would these be weighing that we're releasing here? About uh, 30 to 50 kilograms. Oh, they're light. Very light. Uh, cheetah have become smaller over evolutionary time in the last uh, million years. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. And they crossed into Africa sometime in the in the past million years. So, what's the game plan now? So, once they, as you said, these cheetah are now in a boma here. What's what's the next weeks and months look like? So, we're going to keep them in this boma for about another, let's say, three four weeks. Just break their homing instinct to ensure that they don't want to return back to South Africa. Get them habituated to the area. The uh, uh, resident carnivores will come and visit them at the boma, lion, uh, hyena, leopard. And um, then around about uh, three, four weeks from now, we'll open the gates. And off they go and um, they have to survive. Uh, So they obviously lose a little bit of fitness and condition in the boma. But, you know, cheetah are quite, we, we've realized it's not a major problem. You know, they, they, we all know that, uh, you know, these cheetah are wild functional animals. They, they come from a wild environment, even though it's fenced in South Africa. They're all capable hunters. So it's up to them to go out there and to, number one, avoid competing predators. And number two, catch their own food. That's pretty much a cheetah's life. That's going to be exciting. And they're all collared. All collared with satellite collars, so we'll be able to see, you know, where they're moving on a a daily basis, and to monitor them and to track them. Uh, we've got a wonderful team here at Maromeo with helicopters, uh, so the monitoring's actually done from the air, because the landscape's so um, difficult to traverse, and uh, we'll keep an eye on them, closely monitor them for 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 about. Uh, yeah, for the next year at least. Uh, and then in the long run, you know, we'll have to do genetic top-ups uh, just to prevent uh, inbreeding. So yeah. you'll, ha- you'll have to bring in new animals. Yes. Now, this is a long-term game, yeah. So, so where, how f- how far from here are the you – can, you can open your beer, Tyler. Yes, I, I've yeah. noticed you. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you need another one? Um, this one's a bit warmer. A bit warm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they're all a little warm now. Yeah. It's actually pretty warm out here. There we go. Um, Thank you. How far are the closest – closest cheetah to where we are not too far uh, it's about an eight hour drive uh, but uh, bad roads so only about uh, three four hundred uh, kilometers from here in malawi we have uh, cheetahs in liwande national park uh, which is that re- fenced that's what? fenced okay. yeah uh, they were reintroduced there in 2017 we started with four we're at about 20 now we'll probably collect a few more from them because that's a growing population uh, we have cheetahs in Majeti, Malawi, and then we have a resident cheetah population in Tet Province, Mozambique, which uh, <laughs> we believe there's a few individuals running around there because every now and then we pick up a footprint, okay, and every five years someone manages to snap a photograph. Hmm. So we believe. So uh, it is possible over time that you'll get integration with outside populations with this population, but maybe not in the near future. Uh, we, we're really hoping that these cheetahs will cross into a Gorongosa National Park at some point mm-hmm. in time. 
which is not far from here, naturally recolonized Gorongosa. So there's none there? Uh, none there at the moment, no. And then, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, human destruction of the landscape between Maromeo and, and other surrounding protected areas. I personally don't believe that there will be colonization further than Gorongosa, but it could happen. It could happen. Um, and if it does, it'll be a wonderful event. So what does what does success look like here? Because success won't be everything surviving, because that seems unrealistic to me. Yes. Now, we've, we make peace with the fact that of the 11 cheetah that we have in the Boma here, um, over the next year, we'll probably lose five, six individuals. Uh, yeah. Gin traps, uh, competing predators, lion, leopard. Uh, but our hope is that one or hopefully two females will will reproduce. And uh, once, a, 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 you know, what we've realized managing cheetah populations is, is that they are reliant on a small number of fit and fertile females that produce a remarkable, that successfully raise a lot of cubs to independence. Okay. So you need just one of those females in a system like that. And she will raise 13, 14 cheat, uh, cubs to independence and she will, she will populate this area. So success to us in Gorongosa will be, in 50 years, we'll have 120 cheetahs, yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. And, and sorry, did you, did you, I think you, you mentioned this right at the start. Is that what you feel like the carrying capacity of this area in Katata 11 is? Yes. If you look at the recovery of wildlife populations, yeah, since the hunters came in uh, in the early, uh, in the mid-90s, um, you know, this area has uh, the ecological capacity to support 120 wild cheetahs. How do you actually work that out? We have some clever scientists that uh, have these models. Uh, so basically what we do is we inherit, we get these models from these scientists at universities and you simply plug in the size of the conservation area and then you plug in the, the prey numbers. Okay. So 20,000 reedback, 7,000 uh, hartebeest, uh, 16,000 buffalo, uh, so many rhinos, so many elephant, uh, and, and you plug in all the prey numbers, about 20 species for this area, and then it spits out your prey your number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose in the long run, once eventually you get there, you'll be able to actually, for this kind of, this exact habitat, you'll be able to ground truth whether that's correct or whether it needs yes. adjusted. It'll probably be a little bit out. Yeah. But we, we imagine anything between 60 and 200 cheetahs could survive out here. Well, it truly was spectacular watching them being released into the Burmas yesterday. Yeah. Amazing, I, Tyler. Right? I got, I got uh, some amazing photos. I was down, you know, probably a meter, four feet away from those cages being opened. And they come running out of there full speed. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty incredible to watch. Yeah, I know it's a it's a very majestic animal. It's a beautiful animal, and it's uh, not dangerous to human beings. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, always a pleasure. Sometimes I forget how remarkable the species mm -hmm. is that I that I work with. Yeah. <laughs> and those two males were, those are huge. I've never seen cheetahs that big. Yes, they they two big boys. They're the oldest cheetahs that we brought in, three four years old, in mm. the prime of their of their life. Yeah. And we we imagine that they'll do the first round of, of breeding before the other males catch up with them in size. <laughs> it must be feel pretty amazing to you to be so involved with this species in particular and have the opportunity to bring so many cheetah to a place like this. Did you ever think 10 years ago you would be doing that? 
you'd mm-hmm. have that opportunity well i didn't even know what were you doing 10 years ago <laughs> are you were, you were you involved in cheetah conservation then no no i was actually uh, an entomologist <laughs> oh really <laughs> i studied uh, insects at university uh, but wow I... this is way more interesting for <laughs> 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 all the entomologists who listen and going what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> i studied uh, entomology at university and i did but i did it uh, g- 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 genetics of insects yeah 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 so i did uh, uh, conservation genetics of a beetle species and um, that gave me an idea of how you know the genetic uh, gave me a good genetic understanding which is crucial to to the work that I do today because the same genetic principles apply I know who I'm phoning next year when I do my genetics module at university yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't, don't ask me the finer details but I, I, I do understand the bigger picture of conservation genetics so what took you from entomology to what you're doing now I basically landed with with my my bum in the butter. <laughs> yeah, it was That's such uh, a South African phrase, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, it was a complete fluke. Uh, I finished my master's degree at university, and um, I saw an advertisement uh, conservation as an advertisement for a cheetah meta population coordinator. And I knew that I had a strong genetics background. And at that time, our cheetah population wasn't increasing in South Africa. It was We had a lot of problem cheetahs running around on farmland. And this farmland happened to be owned by Afrikaans-speaking farmers, Boers. And um, my, my, I'm a Funamava, so I speak relatively good Afrikaans. So my job was to go and liaise with these farmers and to uh, remove their problem animals that were killing their sheep and their, their cattle and their, their goats and to relocate them to protected areas. And uh, that was essentially the, the start of the meadow population. And, uh, and it all developed from there when I, you know, we got them off the farmland and into the uh, fence-protected areas and then the numbers started increasing. And uh, that's that's how it all came so about. So who is it that you're working for then? I work for a conservation NGO called the Endangered Wildlife Trust. I work for the Carnivore Conservation Program. So I spe- uh, specifically focus on cheetahs. And then we have a wild dog coordinator. And then my brother. So I work mainly almost exclusively inside fence systems. So I manage the animals genetically inside the fence systems. And my brother works outside of the fence system for the same organization. Oh, really? <laughs> also on cheetah? Cheetah, leopard, and wild dog. Oh, geese, amazing. Yeah. So he's he's got a completely different job. You know, I, I, I very rarely engage with any communities. I simply work with reserve managers, whereas he has to go out and engage with the farmers who are losing livestock to these predators. Um, so he's got a very frustrating job. You know, his, his, yeah, the animals he's working with are in population decline, They've been shot out by farmers. He gets a lot of angry phone calls every day. Whereas I get, you know, friendly phone calls requesting cheetah. Hmm. I wonder, it would be interesting to have a separate conversation with him as to what the solution is there. Because like we were saying at the start, ultimately in the long run, we need to be able to have conservation outside of fence areas as well. That's the ultimate goal, yes. He must be very jealous of your your position where you have this abundance of animals that you need to do stuff with like take them to Mozambique exactly you know it's very rare to be you know working on a conservation project where you're making constant gains yeah. our population's getting bigger we're finding more safe space whereas most other conservationists are just standing there trying to stop this tide of 
anthropogenic human destruction of Fingers the Fingers in the damn wall that's <laughs> leaking every time, every day. Exactly. That's interesting. <laughs> well, um, it's nice. Yeah, it's nice in a world full of often bad news for there to be a, a win like this. And it's been incredible to be here and witness it and get to meet you, know, you and this whole team and see what's going on. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be working on this project, you know, and to, to sleep well at night, of, you know, knowing that you're doing something useful for, so, for society and to make up for my other sins. You know? <laughs> <laughs> By the sounds of it, you might have a lot more work to do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, I've. I've pre, pre, pre podcast conversation. <laughs> Yes, no, I tell you, this project is taking off and we, you know, we're finding more safe space and I'm just getting drawn into it more and more and it's just more permitting and more paperwork and more relocations and more liaison with donors and reserve managers and it's, it's incredibly rewarding, but it's, you know, sometimes it's good to, to switch off and, um, you know, while, while we're moving forward, it's very difficult to take your foot off the pedal, you know. Mm. So it's um it's a it is a it's not always the, the healthiest work to do from a you know social. You probably don't stop. Exactly, <laughs> we just keep going. Yeah, so and you know we we have our moments. I mean, look where we're sitting under this beautiful. I know that the moon has come out now, and I mean, there's nowhere else in the world I want to be right now. <laughs> talking about cheetah conservation underneath the moon in Mozambique. In the back of an open air Land Cruiser. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing field. that would make it better if it was an open air Land Rover. Uh, <laughs> but don't no, say that to anybody no. out here. <laughs> I strongly disagree with that statement. So what's next for you? What, have you got anything, uh, another cool project lined up? Yes. So I this mean, I'm guessing you'll be back here like periodically. Absolutely. You know, we'll be bringing in Cheetah. The, the long-term uh, objective for this place is to increase the population to the extent that we need to remove from here. You know, <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Incredible. And then we could move these animals to other places. Um as we see greater levels of economic development in Africa and political stability and social upliftment. You know, what we've realized is that for conservation to march forward, you do need economic development. You know, you do need social progress. And, 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 and if you look at a country like Zimbabwe, where we had this economic and social decline over the past 21 years, their cheetah population decreased from, from 1,000 individuals to 170. So the irony is we need more economic development to get these conservation gains and to get these opportunities to work in places like this. And the next step for us is, is India. You know, um, so that's the next big thing on your list. That's the next big uh, frontier. And India has the potential for a, a wild cheetah population of over 1,000 individuals in the long run. And um, we know that they're going to make the same mistakes as us. You know, they're going to lose individuals. The in initial reintroductions will probably f fail. But in the long term, um, they'll learn from their mistakes and they'll, uh, they'll learn about the importance of the BOMA and they'll probably realize the importance of fencing. And, um, you know, um, within 50 years, we imagine a growing wild cheetah population in, in India. Well, that would be incredible. Vincent, it's been tremendous to spend time with you the last day or two. Um, you're shooting off tomorrow, which I'm sad about because I would like to spend more time with you, but I'm glad that we managed to put this time aside this evening to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much. No, thank you guys. And it's been a pleasure meeting you. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to engage with you. <laughs>